This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic of today's discussion is post-COVID symptoms, especially post-COVID long hauler syndrome. Today we are joined by Dr. Ravinder Ganesh from the Division of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Ganesh is a consultant and assistant professor of medicine. He has been at the forefront of COVID-19 and has been leading the COVID frontline care team. Dr. Ganesh is also currently leading the efforts of Mayo Clinic in understanding, leaning our clinical practice and possible research in the area of post-COVID long hauler syndrome. Welcome, Ganesh. Thank you. Ravi, so I have heard from you over the last year, this is probably the fourth podcast that we're having on numerous aspects of COVID. And we thought after we dealt with it, uh, we did a fantastic job of managing it now that we have the vaccine and everything else, but up comes this new wave of problems of post-COVID symptoms. And I'm hearing it being described in many different names. Can you just tell us all the different names before we get into what it is and how is it happening and what to do about it? Yeah, it does have a lot of names. There's long COVID, long haulers, post-COVID syndrome, post-acute COVID syndrome. There's a little bit of confusion now because the NIH just released an incentive to study post-acute sequelae of COVID infection or PASC. PASC is a broader term than long haulers alone. It involves post-COVID loss of smell, post-COVID lung problems, but the post-COVID long hauler syndrome is definitely one of those things that fits into it. So today we are going to talk on the post-COVID long hauler syndrome. Dr. Ganesh, could you tell us something about how frequently are we seeing it? How big is the problem? And why is NIH interested in it? It's a fairly big problem. So whenever we have viruses, there's a chance that people will have post-viral syndromes, usually involving fatigue, dyspnea, just general brain fog and um, lack of functioning. And this tends to be more prevalent in viruses that hit people harder. We saw from early in the COVID pandemic that some people were just struggling to recover. The numbers on that are kind of hard to parse out because initially there was a lack of availability of testing. So a lot of people met a clinical syndrome and had post-viral symptoms, but didn't actually have a positive test. Now that testing is becoming more universal, we're starting to see a more clear trend. It looks like people who are hospitalized tend to have a rate of persistent post-COVID symptoms of about 60 to 70%. And for people who did not need hospitalization, it seems to be lower in the 10 to 20% range, but still a significant amount. And given that we've had 100 million COVID cases in the world, that's millions of people that potentially need to be treated. That's a lot. We are looking at managing an entire generation of patients who have these symptoms. And how long do we have to wait before thinking that this is post-COVID? What is the time frame for yeah. the persistence of the symptoms to be diagnosed as post-COVID? We don't have a definitive number on that. What we decided to do is that for even patients with severe COVID, 20 days is generally considered the length of the clinical infection. 
we gave people an extra week and said anybody with symptoms beyond four weeks after COVID most likely has one of these post-COVID syndromes. And then we opted to treat them based on that interval. So it's, it's four weeks, I mean, four to five weeks from what, what I'm hearing you say. So that's a pretty short number. What are the kind of symptoms you talked about, the loss of smell and taste, which is well known, uh, probably are going to be more in the ENT area and probably will recover in one way or the other, or we'll have to wait and see what the sequelae and how it pans out. What are the other range of symptoms that are most bothersome? So the ones that we've seen, fatigue, pain, difficulty getting restful sleep, brain fog. Some people have palpitations and unable to tolerate standing. It's a kind of orthostatic picture. And the way that people recover is kind of on a, a spectrum. A lot of people do get better by about 12 weeks, but some people keep having symptoms for a really long time after, up to six, seven, eight months. And that's kind of what we're trying to capture and manage here. Could you give some uh, narratives on fatigue? I mean, what are they mentioning? They can't, they can't go about doing their work or what kind of statements are you hearing? The thing about the fatigue is that it affects people who generally didn't have a problem with fatigue previously. So very active people, top of their game, used to doing a lot of things. And then after COVID, they developed this fatigue and a lot of people have independently described it as feeling as if all of the energy is out of my body. They wake feeling unrefreshed, they can't do a whole lot, and if they try to push it, they pay for it the next day, feeling extra tired for one or two days until they feel back to their new baseline, which is not normal for them. So they're missing work also. Yeah, a lot of people are missing work. A lot of people have had to cut back on social roles as well. So there's that whole family dynamic that shifts as well, where people can't take care of the kids and do the groceries and things like that. This is one of the problems when I did some reading where there is a clear-cut gender difference or a magnification of problems in particular gender. Can you talk about it a bit? Yes, we've noticed that there has been a preponderance of post-COVID symptoms, as particularly the post-COVID syndrome with the fatigue and palpitations and exercise intolerance in women. And this actually matches data that we have on fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, other post-viral syndromes in the past. There's been research done on this, and while the answer isn't absolutely clear, it, it seems that there is different T-cell response in women compared to men, which is estrogen-driven, and that this may be the key to why women are more likely to develop these symptoms. Hopefully, with the NIH funding this effort, we can get some of these answers and move forward with the science. Could you just elaborate some of the things that NIH is looking at? I've been told there are research studies, there are clinical studies, there are studies which we are on uh, integrative medicine and use of it, and can we avoid it altogether? What kind of studies are being done? So right now, the current um, ROA is kind of to create framework for a consortium where different centers will have patients collect samples and clinical data that will feed into the NIH repository. And the hope is that by getting all these various centers, they'll get a big enough cohort of patients that they can make reasonable conclusions on. Requests for individual clinical trials aren't out as yet in terms of medications or rehab or anything like that, but those should be coming in the weeks to come. Has there been any difference on patients who have been hospitalized or out of hospital 
who are receiving monoclonal or convalescent plasma or any of the other antiviral medications, has that made any difference to the incidence of uh, or prevalence of COVID in this category as compared to people who have not received any of these medications? They have stayed at home, they've had COVID and we have done monitoring for them at home. Have you noticed any difference or does it make any difference? That's a fantastic question, Amit. And um, that's something I'm particularly interested in. My personal belief is that it would. We have a survey that we're going to look at that um, data for the people who got monoclonal antibody. And I believe that by mitigating that immune um, hit, we would potentially have less persistent symptoms after. So in a way, what I'm hearing is the asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients whom characteristically we have said stay home. They are about 70 or 80 percent. How often are we seeing COVID in that category? You gave 20 percent or the number? So we don't have great data on this because all of the patients who self-report their symptoms to these large databases, whether a survivor core in the U.S. or the U.K. survivor variant, I don't remember what the name of the exact team is, but these are large population self-reported studies. So it's hard to make a conclusion from that because there's always the bias that patients who don't have symptoms aren't going to report. But the guess is somewhere between 10 and 20%. I believe that this would be in people who had more symptoms. If you're truly asymptomatic, I don't think that you could develop the post-COVID syndrome, but that remains to be seen. There's no actual evidence on that. So potentially they could probably have moderate symptoms, but still decided to stay home for whatever reasons. And got cured of COVID, but they kind of landed up in this new problem of post-COVID long hauler. What would be so unique about uh, COVID-19 virus that you think is knocking at the immune system and causing this problem? Of course, the other COVID viruses have never given us this big a problem as COVID-19 that The thing that's unique about COVID-19 really is the R0. It's how, how contagious it is and how much it's managed to spread. We did see post-viral symptoms with both the original SARS virus and the MERS virus, but they never spread to the extent that COVID did. So we just never had a magnitude of problem. I suspect that the final results of percentage of people who were infected who had a post-viral syndrome will be the same, just that it's a couple of orders of magnitude of a bigger problem. Could you tell us, uh a lot about the clinic that you are heading, you and your colleagues are heading in general dental medicine. And the plan is to have a post-COVID post-hauler. What, what kind of patients would be best served in that clinic? And what kind of patients could be managed as an outpatient or with an e-health or, or a telehealth version of uh, consulting with you? We're looking to kind of have GIM act as a triage hub for all the patients with persistent post-COVID symptoms. Some patients will have one problem and will be sent directly to the team that manages that. Like if you have shortness of breath as your only problem, we're gonna send you straight to pulmonary. If you have multiple problems or we get a flavor that you have this post-viral long hauler syndrome, we're gonna to wanna to see you in GIM, coordinate your workup. And if there's nothing found on lab testing that would tell us otherwise, we would start a rehabilitative program aimed at symptom management and getting people back to function. And that's called post-COVID care clinic or PCOCC, PCOC. We, we had to have a nice fancy bird name, 
And we, we really hope that we'll be able to help a lot of people through this uh, method. The aim of having a purely virtual clinic is quite reasonable, especially given that we're a destination medical center and a lot of our patients are not from the local and surrounding areas. We would like to help people from other areas. There are challenges with telemedicine, especially where it comes to assessment, but people who have mild cases and have been evaluated appropriately locally could potentially be seen in our virtual rehab program, which we're developing. Ravi, from working in the chronic fatigue clinic, the fibromyalgia clinic, especially patients who need more than just a day's program, can you just describe what a general patient with chronic fatigue, after they've gone through medical evaluation and it comes to management of their fatigue, what kind of programs and what kind of specialists do they see in uh, your clinic? So in, in our clinic, the, f- the first goal is, uh, as you mentioned, to rule out anything else that might be compounding the picture. Once we have decided on a rehabilitative um, program, we move ahead with a program that's been developed in conjunction with psychology and psychiatry and physical medicine and rehabilitation. So it's a combined program kind of optimizing gradual paced rehabilitation because these are folks who, if they go too fast, they feel terrible. And we also work on the cognitive behavioral aspects of how to deal with the fatigue, how to deal with pain, and how to set reasonable goals. Because our patients are all very high achievers, and they want to be better tomorrow. And the process of goal setting and setting very small, manageable, attainable goals is very important in rehab. The other thing we really try to reinforce is that this is not a sprint. It's going to take a while for people to rehab successfully and we need to support them for this entire period when they're still not feeling good. If somebody were to uh, want to contact us to get to be seen by you or one of your colleagues in our post-COVID hollow syndrome or enroll themselves in a research program Is there a phone number or a website that we can download and in this podcast, which they can call and enroll themselves? So in terms of a website, we're actively still building that and we can update the the podcast page later with that information. In terms of a phone number, if you call the central appointment office, uh, they have a triage tree that will direct you to our team for evaluation and we'll determine if we need to see you in person or how best to help you. Is there anything you would like our listeners to learn or, or hear from you about anything else that we have not covered for post-COVID? It's important for our listeners to know that even though we may not find lab tests that indicate that you have a disorder that causes tissue damage. It does not change the fact that you're having symptoms. The symptoms are real and we do need to try and help you get over them. We don't know a lot about what happens in the post-COVID environment. And anyone who claims that they do know and that they have a solution to sell you probably is not paying enough attention and has not done the research that they need to do. We'll have answers. We'll have data. It'll be months in the future and be very careful about what you do because while you're desperate to get better it may actually wind up making things worse what would be your your advice uh, apart from just saying okay we have to be patient and we have to have empathy but what would be your 
other recommendation of what not to do in this case? For providers who are dealing with patients who are really struggling with this post-COVID syndrome, having persistent symptoms, it's very important to have your patient feel heard, provide support, and if you need to, please refer them to our program and we'd be happy to help in whichever way we can. Yes, so you just um, exemplified of how we care in the Mayo Clinic. It's a consensus-driven, team-based effort where we listen to the patient carefully, take opinions from different uh, doctors, and then come to a consensus which is discussed with the patient. We look at their values, their preferences, and what they want to achieve, and then have a desirable goal of how to manage the uncertainty. You also described about the step and ladder and gradual setting of expectations, which are gradual, progressive, with uh, almost pragmatic approach of managing rather than really saying that we know it all and we have all the answers. But having said that, uh, what we have really achieved in COVID, where we started last year, incrementally, we made a lot of progress. Uh, Dr. Ganesh, your team has shown how using monoclonals and having an ambulatory way of delivering monoclonals to patients who need it, doing constant research in a multidisciplinary fashion. I personally feel, and my colleagues whom I talk with feel very confident now on dealing with COVID. The numbers are fortunately decreasing, active cases, but the numbers of COVID post-tolerance are increasing. We are going to be geared up for this, and I thank you for your expertise um, on these very important issues. And we plan to bring you back as we learn more from your research on anything new that we are going to learn on who is at risk, what can we do about the risk, how can we mitigate the risk, and what can we do to manage in a compassionate fashion once we have it. But we want to reassure our other doctors, physicians, nurses, and patients that we are here in Mayo Clinic for you. Our team is has one of the largest experience in this group, is completely ready to manage whatever symptoms you're having. With that, I thank Dr. Ganesh for your time. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy. Thank you very much.